Hello, and welcome to the Inheritance Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. Today, we are talking to Jamie Weiner, author of the book, Quest for Legitimacy. Jamie is a psychologist and the co-founder of Inheriting Wisdom, a firm that works with prominent families in Chicago and the co-author of The Legacy Conversation. So we'll just start with, with your background. Can you tell us where you're from and where you went to school? Yeah, Joe, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in Colorado Springs, but I left when I was three. So I don't remember a whole lot of that. And I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. I graduated, undergraduate at Roosevelt, and I have my doctorate from Adler School of Professional Psychology. Now, that would be Alfred Adler. That would be Alfred. Now, were you very much influenced? Do you consider yourself an Adlerian? You know, that's interesting. I liked Adler's work. I also participated in a Freudian study group for about five years. So Freud and Adler didn't end up being best of friends. And so I have a little bit of influences. Adler is very practical. It's much more about one's connection and hunger for connection to the world and to others. I think maybe I got a whiff of the inferiority complex, especially in the, the background of, of your book. Yeah, it's there. Thanks for pulling that out because somebody would have to know a little bit to under, understand that. Big, big part of Adler's thinking. I think in the book, it comes through in the whole idea of whether one measures up, whether one feels that, that one is enough. And in the book, it's specifically related to rising gen who are on a quest to be able to find who they are from, from the, the, the world that they were brought up in. Did you want to become an analyst? Does Adler have the same root as Freudian analysis? At the time when I was studying Freudian thought and Adlerian thought, the whole the whole field of psychology kind of made a shift, kind of dictated by what was going on in the health insurance industry. And I don't think that was Freud's problem. I don't think he was worried about reimbursements. And as a result, a lot of his clientele came from high net, net worth families. And it was sort of even part of the culture to go and get analyzed. And I didn't take the time to see if that culture still exists and having done things like work at Cook County Jail, hard to do analysis in Cook County Jail. What were you doing there? A lot of people don't realize that Cook County Jail has the largest psychiatric hospital on a single site anywhere in the world. So there was a residential treatment unit that had three, 400 detainees. The, the jail is 80,000 detainees. And I developed a structured written model of support for the detainees in the psychiatric portion of the jail and trained the staff. So I had 30 groups, groups a week going on in the middle of this very strange place. And how long were you there? Four and a half years. And what was your takeaway from working with those kind of clients? You know, Joe, it's, it's interesting because they too were on a quest about it. There's research that shows that about a third of them are going to use the tools you give them to become 
more sociopathic or psychopathic, but they're clearly they're another part of the population that would really like to figure out how to change their lives. And the last session of the group was basically ask, pointing out that they'd been in jail and asked them whether they wanted to do something to change their lives so they wouldn't spend their lives in jail. I left after four and a half years because it was a very hard place to be and it had a lot of impact on me. And I just, I just wanted, I wanted to be in a different space. And ironically, when from there to working with high net worth families. You said that their self-understanding and for some of them made it actually worse. Yeah. So it's not talked about as much anymore, but there, at the time I was there was a lot of research on psychopaths or sociopaths or ones who do it, can do it in a much more culturally accepted way. And because of the injuries that they've experienced in their lives and whatever other reasons, because it gets pretty complicated, they tend to absorb what they learn and because their distrust of other human beings is so powerful that they use it to be able to manipulate the world rather than to change themselves. How prevalent do you think psychopathology is in the larger population? Because you've seen, you've seen it up close. You know, it really, know what it's close. really like. Yeah. We could get into a conversation about how prevalent it is among high net worth families or, you know, and politicians, or I'm not sure we want to go there. I think it's clearly, to some degree, an element of the larger society. I couldn't give you a number on it. The reason I ask is it's such a pop psychology topic, certainly online. Folks are always speculating, but I think their conception of it is, is a much lighter weight version of what it actually is, which is very disturbing. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a great point because I think a lot of things, including depression, the cultural view of what depression is, is not the same as what, if you get deep into what depression's about. And I know for a period of my life, I worked at the University of Chicago hospital, and it was clear that there were fads in psychiatric hospitals for, oh. We're doing, we're doing schizophrenia now. So are you, oh yeah, that's a schizophrenic. And then it was sort of, oh, you have some kind of bipolar or a malad disorder or a bump. And, and I think there's been some work to try and sort that out. For my purpose, when I began working with high net worth family, it was a valuable lesson to take a look at the level of trust people have and how stuck people get when they don't have a lot on level of trust and how hard that is for the rising gen on their quest if they don't trust anybody in the world. So you think the popular conception of depression is wrong? So the current statistics about college students have about third of those in college seeking mental health treatment and college is struggling to, to meet that need. And it's a hard distinction because I think what's lost is the notion that having, as I talk about in the book, having breaking moments in your life 
in periods of liminality where you feel betwixt and between and you're struggling to sort out who you are. I think that's normal. I think it can be growth-inducing. I think it can set one on a path, which I refer to as the quest, that can have a very positive outcome in terms of struggling to figure out agency in your life, which may not mean you don't want to get therapy or talk to somebody or have a coach or work with a, a group of you know other people on the same struggle. It just means that it's not what I would call clinical depression. And so uh, what other influences have you had in your life outside of Adler? Were you a reader of Jung or, or Steckel or any of the other Freudians? Yeah, I, a little bit. The practicality of what I needed to know to do the kind of work I was doing sometimes differed with immersing myself in that world of thought. Because I, you know, at the time I was coming up as a psychologist, behaviorism was the, the dominant force and evolved into, you know, thinking about cognition as well. And psychology, when it came to the States, and Bruno Benelheim did an excellent book on that, you know, kind of turned into a medical model so that we began to think about psychology, not as a tool for self-discovery, but as a, you know, a, a medical a disease that we needed to sort out. Did you study any family systems therapy? I've read some family systems therapy. I'm not taking a deep dive. Bowen is kind of the popular theorist and those working with high net worth families. And I think it's very valuable. A lot of the work I've done has been the result of personal experiences and learning from the personal experiences that my wife has had and I've had. Do you think there's a tension between psychology and family systems and that one is more focused on the individual and one is more focused on the family? Does that make sense? Joe, that makes so much sense to me. I've thought about actually writing an article on it <clears throat> because... And it's really relevant when you think about rising gen, because rising gen, if you think about them only in the context of a family systems theory, sort of suggests it sort of minimizes the individual struggle that they can. And I learned to do the work that I've done in my life originally sitting in consulting rooms with an individual. and. Some people have written about the family systems that we've internalized, but my view is always about the individual needs to sort out and figure out who they are to know themselves. And even in the book, you'll, you'll, you can feel underneath the surface of the stories told in the quest for legitimacy, there's a real pull on the individual struggle to sort out who you are and maybe the need to relate to others about it who have similar experiences, but it's, it's a private journey. How did you start working with wealthy clients? So it's all my wife's fault. My wife came from, Carol, I came from a, a family business 
Her parents passed 35 days from each other. It is almost like they had an unwritten deal and then nobody was going to hang around too long afterwards. Her father had built a national business in the frozen food industry. There had been a generation before that had a different business. And when that business broke up, people stopped talking to each other. They didn't go to each other's funerals. And it really started with the personal desire to make sure that didn't happen in our family. I'm a stepfather, but they're, they're my family at this point. And, and all of a sudden it really occurred to us that this was common, that we weren't alone. And given our backgrounds, she's a psychologist as well. We've created inherited wisdom and began to work with families on all the stuff that goes on behind the mind. You've shifted gears pretty dramatically from Cook County to working with family business clients. What was that shift like? So the way I usually talk about this is that Cook County Jail gave me an opportunity to see human nature in the raw. That is, it's not very sophisticated. It's not very well defended. And it may become somewhat defended because lawyers tell their clients not to talk to anybody about what's going on inside. But if they talk about what's going on inside, it's kind of out in the open. In the world of working with family businesses and family enterprises, there's a degree of sophistication. There's a better level of defenses. And particularly for the giants who kind of establish great success, it's easy to get lost in them being giants and not see behind to see the, the mortality, the human humanness of their experience. And in order many in many cases, in order to get what accomplish what they've accomplished, they've had to organize themselves in a way and use some Yiddish word chutzpah to make stuff happen. Ironically, when you're in the jail, some of the detainees, they develop weapons out of nothing. I mean, they do some amazingly innovative stuff. They just don't know how to organize it in a way that is productive or useful and may not have the values either, which is a whole, whole different discussion. You think that's a big part of why they end up in prison? Yeah, well, very complicated because that's part of why they end up in prison. The other thing is clearly 70 to 80% of the population is African-American or Hispanic. So there's a real cultural portion to why them as opposed to white kids who get in trouble. And I mean, I know attorneys who have exclusive practices helping affluent uh, families avoid legal issues and avoid getting put in jail and avoid um, the consequences, or at least modify how the consequences are getting handled that would keep out of the jail. The first book was The Legacy Conversation. What can you tell us about the message of that book? So that book was written by Carolyn and I. Here's a very simple message. It's really uh, uses a collection of stories to bring home the importance of paying attention to the wisdom that you're handing on to the next generation. And I know a lot of people talk about it in terms of mission statements and value statements. We really talked about the importance of wisdom 
and handing wisdom down. In the book, there's a legacy wheel, and the wheel really talks about being able to identify the non-tangible parts, the human parts of what you want to hand down and use them to help you drive decisions about what are you going to do with your wealth? What are you going to do about philanthropy? How you're going to handle wellness? To develop a full legacy for your family. The new book is called Quest for Legitimacy. What is the quest for legitimacy? So the quest for legitimacy was written based upon qualitative research study. We interviewed 24 rising gen family members from around the globe twice, once before COVID. Once after COVID, we didn't plan COVID, it just happened. But we were curious about what changed. We would have done a, a second interview in, a, in either case. And the question we asked was, as at the beginning of every interview, is what is it like growing up in the land of giants? We weren't surprised. Some other people are surprised that nobody turned to us and said, giants, what are you talking about? They immediately understood what we were talking about. They knew who the giants were in their lives. To quote one woman, she said, I have many giants in my life. And when I think about it, it's all about achievements. And what she really was referring to was the idea that she grew up in a world where achievements were pretty high. And at this point, third and fourth generation of extremely high achievements of a company that started in basement and had become international. And what we discovered as part of the research is that there was a path, that there was a quest that had four phases, starting with awareness, that moment when people began to notice there's something different about my life. You know, one woman grew up in a family that was a giant diamond trading family. And she learned how to count by counting diamonds that her father brought home. She went to school. Nobody else had learned by, to count by counting diamonds. It evolves into a period of a tug of war. You're born, you learn some things, you may be in, in, immersed in a world that's very successful. They may have family governance. I grew up in a prominent family. My dad was a rabbi. You know, the world that I was walking into when I left the home and the world that I was uh, brought in, up in when I was growing up there were two worlds. And I would come home with new stuff when I was young and everybody go, oh, how cute. And then I would come home with new stuff when I was a little older and I'd go, oh my God, where'd you get that? Careful, right? Because they wouldn't feel so good about it. Evolves into a period of exploration. It's really when we move a little bit more away from family and have them internalized. And we begin to sort out what we know about the world as we begin to form a sense of self and move into the final phase where we take power of our life and feel that we have agency in the world. And that's the quest. What, what exactly is the land of the giants? If you want to expand a little bit on that metaphor, is that, is that something that you're always going to live in or is it something you have to leave or is it you leave and come back? How does that work in the mind of the rising gen? The land of the giants is a world that somebody's born into. 
although we interviewed people where the parent became a giant during the course of their lifetime, we interviewed Henry Kaiser. His grandfather built Kaiser Industries. So what, at one point, one of the wealthiest families in the world. So his father took over that business. Grandfather built, helped build the Hoover Dam, was a significant figure, probably at the level of Henry Ford and others. And he lived his life feeling that everybody was giving him the message that he should prepare for something because of the giant and went off to private school, was about to get married and found out that his grandfather wouldn't come to the wedding because he was too ill and met him at Kaiser Center, hoping that grandfather would give a blessing for him to have a role in Kaiser Industries. And like many families, the conversation never evolved and he left. Not sure where he fit in that world, but also beginning to realize that he didn't really know his grandfather who had been his hero and his grandfather didn't know him. And with some sadness that that never happened because of how powerful an image the grandfather raised it for him. What was his journey like after that? Had an interesting journey. He went off to the Navy for a while. He did eventually find a role within Kaiser Industries. At first, his father didn't want him to be in Kaiser Industries, but then invited him in. And in that particular family, the wealth never made it to the third generation. It's an interesting account of how quickly wealth can disappear. What remained of Kaiser Industries is Kaiser Prementi, which funded by the foundation. And he really struggled to sort out what he was going to do and who he was going to be and tried and 75 years old at this point. So he was reflecting back and growing up on the land of giants and he's still kind of trying to find his place in the world, take agency for his life. So what is the experience of these inheritors like? How do they find their way? It's an absolutely challenging thing to think about. You know, at one point in culture, there were clear rites of passage. Some of them were not so pleasant, could involve adult circumcision. I'm not sure anybody would vote for that at this point. You know, maybe you had to bring home the head of the lion until, it, you know, became clear that Maybe lions were going to become extinct, but you had to prove yourself in some tangible way. I don't believe in our culture that getting married going off to college, a lot of the things that we would assume might be rites of passage, truly are markers. And so the quest is a very personal journey and, and most of the people we interviewed talked about the loneliness they experience and the idea that nobody quite gets it. Nobody quite gets what they're struggling with. I'm not sure everybody understands. I think there's some idea that they, you know, these kids grow up with opportunity. I think even in terms of some of the planning that's done for them, nobody truly understands their challenge. 
even for those who are prominent and don't have wealth, sorting out who you're going to be in the shadow of somebody who's done large things. For me personally, my father's funeral, there were 2,000 people that showed up at my dad's funeral. And I was 30 years old at the time, and I remember the feeling that very clearly that I felt like, did my father get an opportunity to see me having risen and completed a quest in a way that would have made him proud of who I am. So much later in life, particularly with the writing of this book, I wish you were around so that he could see the outcome and be aware of who I've become. And I think that's part of what the rite of passage is about or the quest as I refer to it. But I think understanding the loneliness would benefit family members. It would understand the people, it helps the people who advise those who are rising. And most of all, I think it would help those who are rising feel like there is a path that there is a route, which I think would make a huge difference. And that's really the feedback that I'm getting from rising gen family members who are aware of the work that I've done. Tell us a little bit more about your childhood. I think that's one of the more interesting threads of the book and your relationship to your father, the rabbi. So I opened the book with a cute story, which I love to tell, so I'm going to tell it. Probably at three, four years old, I'm in the sanctuary. In a Jewish sanctuary, it's pretty simple. The, the main focus of the Jewish sanctuary is there's an ark with the scrolls that have the five books of Moses, the Torah, and an eternal light from above. The way the sanctuary, the ark was set in my dad's synagogue, our synagogue, he had to, his office was from behind. So he had to enter from behind. He was wearing his black robes. He had a white tully scarf around his neck. And from a couple rows in front of me, I hear a little voice going, Mom, Mom, is that God? Well, everybody chuckled throughout the whole sanctuary, except for me. And to this day, I have a hard time looking at that four-year-old kid and going, well, what he said was pretty normal. And it's not like my dad and I talked about, you know, most of the time he was a dad, he's a normal guy. But there were times that I was just aware of how prominent he was. How did that play out over the course of your life? How do you feel like maybe the stages on your own quest would be helpful to illustrate it a bit? So probably the clearest thing that, that pops up in my mind when you say that, Joe, is I think about the breaking moments I had in my own life. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but the, the breaking moments, that's something you, you illustrate in the book. What are the breaking moments? So what we found, I'm glad you interrupted. It's a major point of the book. The book, it talks about the fact that everybody we interviewed talked about moments, some small, some bigger, that something happened where there was a break in their path. And it could be as dramatic as she was fired by his father by email. 
It could be as unobvious as somebody who grew up in a family where they played a lot of sports and a lot of tennis, and he literally broke his arm and knew he never would play tennis again and started to pursue something different about who he was going to be. And I became a musician, got into surfing from Costa Rica, but it just changed and it altered the relationship between him and his parent as well. And so when I think about my own life, I think about those kinds of moments. And, you know, I got divorced was a breaking moment, but even early on when I was in high school and I gravitated to the theater and I think the idea of being able to get on stage and act was my way of trying to find my own pulpit. And so it wasn't a clear break. It wasn't like something happened. Other than I felt very awkward when I started high school on like I didn't fit, which was some of my awareness of being different. But even my father's death when I was 30 years old and about to go back to graduate school was just a moment that threw me into a period of liminality, a feeling betwixt and between, and I'm struggling to sort out who I am. There was a great expression in the book. It was a burst of legitimacy. Is that what that is? Yeah, it's certainly the seed for a burst of legitimacy, right? Right. So what is that? What is a burst of legitimacy? It's a period where you recognize that in spite of what's happened to you, what you're doing is your own beginning of feeling like you can walk in the land of the giants. And what is that like? What is it given? Could you give an example? Yeah, I think. My life is a good example because I think I alternated between feeling like I wasn't enough and then would do something. You know, even the group that I created for Cook County Jail and having 30 groups in a very difficult situation work, that was an accomplishment. And it, it's, it changed a part of what was going on for a lot of people. And so for a moment, I had this burst of feeling that I was doing something significant and legitimate. I did a videotape of one of the groups that was presented at American Psychological Association. And it was so easy to, to dip from feeling successful to feeling like I was struggling again. And the book is filled with stories of people who have similar kinds of experience. So this is most certainly describes not just life in a wealthy family, but the human condition in general. But most folks have to go through this quest, uh, individuation or becoming an adult. So what is the difference when significant money is involved? So I, I'm really clear that there is something that applies to everybody in the idea of the, the quest. The research I, done, I did focused those who grew up with prominence, many who grew up with wealth. First of all, there are a lot of institutions connected to growing up in that kind of world. There are a lot of people doing, making plans for you about how wealth is going to get transferred, how business is going to get transferred, about whether you're prepared or not prepared. In fact, there are tons of programs designed by firms 
helping prepare the rising gen. And there's a preoccupation with making sure that the goose that laid the golden egg doesn't get broken, doesn't get destroyed. And, and I'm not suggesting it should get destroyed, but I am recognizing that as you grow up in a world like that, if you grow up in a world where you have a parent as a clergyman, if you grow up as in a world where you have a dominant lawyer as a parent, that there's unverbalized, sometimes verbalized, but a lot of times unverbalized expectations you grow up with, and that it makes feeling legitimate. And I use the word legitimate rather than successful. A different challenge. Successful can be measured in money. It can be measured in the job you're doing. Women, women we interviewed had risen the corporate ladder to a point that she could create her own jobs. And yet the image of what her grandfather had accomplished sat there as a marker that impacted her parents and generation and impacted her as well because she thought she could had some of the same magic that her grandfather had to accomplish things and do deals. So she found inspiration in the past. She had a difficult childhood because her father really struggled, but she found inspiration. That image was still there. She also, over time, began to see that her grandfather was human, made mistakes, was not a great parent, all kinds of other things that kind of complicated the image. But in terms of his ability to be an entrepreneur, and she's ended up doing leadership coaching in the family business space. So she's found a place for herself, but it was only by sorting through what she saw and in addition to the struggle for who is she going to be professionally, it took her a while to figure out why she was struggling to have a relationship. She had to do some work to kind of sort out how to trust and how to open herself up to a relationship and is now married and a step-parent and living a pretty full life. How is what you're talking about different from what's called imposter syndrome? There's probably an overlap. Imposter syndrome, when I first heard about it, usually was connected to women more than men. I don't think it didn't apply to men. I just don't think it was connected as much to the idea of women growing up with the glass ceiling. And I guess the overlay that I'm putting on it is the particular image of a giant that sits out there. It's part of why you feel like you're an imposter. What does it take to address these issues in a, in a clinical setting? I assume this isn't something you can solve in a month or, or with a pill. I would love to develop that pill, but it would be <laughs> very lucrative. So I play with the notion of, in the book of what the word rising means. And, you know, we used to talk about those who grew up in prominent families as being the next gen who's really shifted the conversation to the idea of the rising gen to kind of differentiate them from just somebody who's sitting there and waiting for, you know, for rain to happen, financial rain to happen. I really pushed the concept to the idea that life is either about rising or stagnating or declining. And so 
when you begin to think that way, the biggest challenge is to break the isolation. And we're beginning to work on creating experiences for rising gen that I don't tie to an age period that really would help them address the quest, help them sort out where they sit in the four phases and help them take a look at what it takes to feel like they've developed agency over their own lives and that they're able to fly independently. And that would be the same approach you would use with an individual client. Yeah, absolutely. You know, individual work is wonderful work. You know, the idea of getting to spend a certain amount of time with somebody where they enter kind of a different world from the rest of their daily lives provides amazing opportunities to dig deeply. The only challenge in individual work is it needs to get, they need to leave and enact it somehow in the outside world with who they are and what they do and how they relate to others, how they take the, take their own quest. And, and so how do they develop trust? I mean, there, you certainly have to develop trust and communication inside the family to avoid conflict and help them individuate. But what about with the outside world? So the issue of trust is a complicated one. And I suppose my experience with Cook County Jail made me doubt whether everybody is really capable of developing trust with the outside world whether some people get injured enough that they can't do that. And I think being aware of that when you're working with people is crucial. I'm not saying that somebody can't do better with their lives based upon their own self-interest. Trust involves implying being able to see somebody else and have some empathy for who other human beings are. And it's something that you need to do over time. It's also not the same thing as going out and I'm going to love everybody because there's clearly some realities about what some of the basic needs that Maslow talks about of safety and other things, how those have to be in place. But the trust also op opens the door to thinking of development as a lifelong challenge, as a lifelong process. And I'm really glad about that because it means that at 74 years old, I can still be developing. <laughs> and I think, Joe, you probably can too, right? <laughs> they all could, for sure. Because <laughs> the alternative is, doesn't sound very good. No, no. Stagnation <laughs> is not the road we want to be on. <laughs> Why doesn't telling your children that they can be anything help them? Don't get me wrong. It's a great thing to do. One of the women in the book, there's a chapter on women, and I was very smart. I just tell the stories of three different women. I don't pretend that as a man, I can, this is what you should do as women. And they do a better job of, t of covering it. One of the women who grew up with a father was pretty incredible at a very early age, started cleaning up in front of a um, factory that was involved in scientific endeavors. And he just did it voluntarily until the owner found out after a couple months and brought him in and hired him. So that's the kind of man he was. He would have dinner discussions where they would discuss literature, they would discuss Freud, and he repeatedly told his daughter, you should take a look at the life of Margaret Thatcher. You should take a look at 
of the lives of other prominent women because as a woman, you can do whatever you want to do. His business, he was the first one to bring Mercedes to Mexico. There's some complications with the family, fell apart and being went bankrupt. And she, she got to see him kind of broken. But it threw her into a period of exploration where she began to go around the globe. She wanted to hold on to the culture that she was brought up in, but she wanted to experience the world. And so she actively pursued learning about the world and has become a successful entrepreneur in her own right. And, and I think that's it just, it's a beautiful thing, thing to watch when you see it happen. She does some work with Rising Gen as well and has built a multiple family office. So particularly focusing on folks from Mexico and other Latin American countries. Is there anything compelling that you've learned from talking to your peers about these issues as you were working on this? I think you've been working on this for a few years now. It's about five years. Five years. And my peers have made it very clear that I've asked a little bit different question than has been asked before. How so? Most of the work about the rising gen is about their role in the business or the enterprise, their ability to handle wealth. And the question I asked, which in getting feedback from professionals will make a difference, is about the personal journey request. And that is different. And I'm not suggesting you don't need to know about handling wealth. I had a conversation yesterday with someone who works with a cohort of Rising Gen. And she said, and when they did the evaluation through a questionnaire, one of the things they said changed the most was financial knowledge. It was so strange. They never talked about financial knowledge in the course of the program. And could only conclude that because the participants had changed in their ownership, sense of ownership, that they had felt that they had a better understanding of what was going on. Is there any story in the book that you think really highlights this journey well? The story that's most predominant in the book is the story of Rishi. First interview we had with Rishi. We asked him about the land of giants. He started off with talking about how his parents came from two different cultures and his father was Indian and his mother was Canadian and about how there were two wedding ceremonies when they got married. And I think he tells that story first because I think that plays so heavily in his life. Rishi went off, he became an entrepreneur while he was going to college. He got invited back into the family business, set up a company, then managed the 10 companies that his father created and did all the back end. At some point, it was time to go back to school. He went off to get advanced degrees in business, thought about theater or a few other things, but that was his choice. Came back because his father had bought a business that was struggling. And they hadn't planned to go back to work for this father, work with his father for a difficult year, and then went off to the World Cup on his way back, stopped in Miami and got an email that fired him from his dad. 
and went through a breaking moment and went through a couple of years of being betwixt and between in a period of liminality, got a position as a professor. What do you mean a period of, of liminality? Period of not being able to sort out who he was or what he wanted to do, how he was going to handle the relationship he had, it just kind of turned everything upside down. And it, he didn't talk to his parents for that two-year period. At the end of two years, when he finally got hired by a university and the professor trap, decided that before he took his new life on, he needed to go knock on his dad's door. And he had no idea what the response would be. And so he went through some exploration during that period. He was taking some agency and then knocking on the door. He didn't know. And his dad answered the door and within a few minutes looked at him with tears in his eyes and said, not common for an Indian man. I'm so glad you did this based upon how I've been raised. I would have never done, I would never have reached out. And it changed the relationship from that day on. His dad didn't give up on the idea that one day he would take over the business or maybe one of his siblings, but it did allow them of space for him and the dad to have conversations and back and forth about how the son viewed, how Rishi viewed his dad and his dad's decisions and how his dad could be helpful in his ideas about Rishi's path as he begins to, has left the university and now is doing much more entrepreneurial work. That was one of many, many great stories in the book. Do you think with your long experience, and you've spent a lot of time thinking about these issues and worked with a lot of interesting individuals, do you think that individuals have one recurring puzzle to solve in their life? Or is it many challenges? You know, it could be both as I think about it. I think we have patterns and I think the patterns start pretty early. And I think we do repeat those patterns. But I, I also think that there's a lot of flexibility in terms of our power to chart our course. And I think a lot of times people think that it's one or the other. And my thought, Joe, is it's the best of both or the most difficult of both as you're beginning to sort it out. So you don't think your childhood is going to be your destiny, so to speak? Well, I can look at who I am now. I don't know about you, but I can look at who I am now and I can see patterns that went back to the first moments of awareness that I had. I second mirror and I can see how the choice of who I've made was influenced by those patterns, but I also took the agency to make that choice and to sort it out. How do, how do we work it out and how do we work it out with <clears throat> three stepchildren coming into a marriage and, you know, all of the, the complexity that modern life is about. The book is called quest for legitimacy. The author is Jamie Weiner. Thank you, Jamie. Joe, my pleasure. Always good to be here. Thanks for listening. 
Please subscribe or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.